Thank you. Do keep those uh, words in front of you. For some of you, of course, they'll be very familiar. Uh, if you've been around Christian things for a while. But I want to do something a little different with them uh, this evening. Because during the week, a Christian friend told me of a conversation he'd had with a friend of his who was a, is a, a deep skeptic about Christian things. And my friend uh, said something that I happen to think may turn out to be unfortunate. He said, if I gave you a book, would you read it? The answer came, maybe. Well, we'll see what happens. But I was struck by the thought that such a response is probably very common. We feel that we don't have what it takes to persuade someone ourselves, so it must be better, mustn't it, to give them a book. Because in a book, a writer who's probably cleverer than us has put things in clear terms and spent time sorting it out, and they won't be making the mistakes that we ourselves might make. Well, I don't suppose a book will do much harm. But do we really suppose that when Jesus left the Holy Spirit behind him uh, to reach the world, he was primarily thinking of people who might write books? So my mission tonight is to suggest to you that as an ordinary believer, with your Bible in your hand and the Holy Spirit in your heart, you are more than sufficient to engage an unbelieving friend. And more than that, to suggest that such an approach speaks much more of God's own character than any number of books might do, though helpful they may be about particular issues. You see, as we've often observed in this series, and Jonathan reminded, it, reminded us of it a moment ago, John says he wrote this in order that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We're hopping about, in case you wondered, because we needed, we needed to skip some chapters originally in order that Easter, as it were, landed at the right time. So now we're going back to cover them again. But how can we use these words to help the person wondering about Christ? John says that's what they're for. So how can we make them do the job that we've been told they're for? I'm going to ask you to imagine tonight that you're in conversation with an unbelieving friend, and that you've been reading the Bible with them, and that you've come to John 15. And if you do that, you will find that it is absolutely shot through with surprises. The first off, whatever we go on to say in this session, either this session now or the session I'm imagining that you may have with your friend, this matters. Look at verse 6. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. We may not yet understand branches and pruning and remaining, but we understand what verse 6 is saying. This is a matter of flourishing or withering, of blessing or burning. It's actually a matter of life and death. Whether you make up your mind now, tonight, or 20 years from now, Know this, that when Jesus said these things, he thought they were supremely important. And then I would say to my friend, why don't we pray? 
And so I say to you, why don't we pray for a moment? Lord God, you have provided your word and your spirit. Give us confidence, we pray, that by your word and by your spirit, even we have what is necessary to speak to those in the world around us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And I want to suggest that this passage has at least, may have others, at least four surprises in it. For the person who supposes, and reasonably enough, that uh, what is involved, what you're trying to persuade them to do, is simply to believe in Jesus. It's not just that, about believing in Jesus. It's got four surprises. You belong, you obey, you love, and you ask. And I'm going to go through those four uh, one at a time. The first surprise, for many people, I suspect, is you think this is about something called believing. But actually, when you look at it, it's at least as much about belonging. Um, I asked you, didn't I, to keep your Bibles open at that page, and now I'm going to ask you to uh, change that page. Would you please turn to Isaiah chapter 5? You'll find it on page 689. Isaiah was a prophet. Of uh, the people of God uh, 800 years or so before Jesus. Chapter 5, you'll see it's titled The Song of the Vineyard. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. This is the prophet talking to the people. My loved one had a vineyard on her fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I've done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. The vineyard, the vine, had been used for a very long time as a sign for the people of God themselves. Maybe that's a surprise for you, that that should matter so much. But the truth is that throughout uh, Scripture, God's plans have been to have a people for himself. And again and again, the promise comes to the people. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And what that tells us before we notice anything else is that as far as God is concerned, when we enter this business of believing and faith and all the rest of it, The primary reference is not individual, but corporate. If my friend is sitting there and saying, well, God's going to be terribly pleased with me because I'm thinking about whether I choose to believe in him, God is saying in response, big deal. Because God knows the issues are corporate, at least as much as they are individual. 
It was only possible, it remains only possible to know God fully when we know him alongside others who know him and appreciate his abundance and diversity. The people failed him again and again, and Isaiah is one of those who records the failure. But now, according to John 15, flip back to it, comes another prophet who says what no prophet before him would dare to have said. Chapter 15, verse 1, I am the true vine. Jesus claims in himself to be the one true people of God. It is not possible then to be a believer, my friend, without being a, quote, branch in me, unquote. Now that may mean all kinds of things, but at least it means this. This is not about the assent that you may give to the idea of Christ. It is an earthy, total belonging to and in Christ. Do you notice he's not even saying, I am the trunk, and with the other branches together, we make up one vine. It's more breathtaking than that the nerve of the man to say, I am the true vine. I will not be the one letting God down, finally. The nerve, unless it's true. We belong in him, in union with him, it is corporate. And then we belong with others. This is no private contract to believe, which is how so many people expect it to be, but a decision to belong to a body that's spread through the world and through its history, a people that God can call his own. I'm sorry if you thought it was about you and God, but it isn't. It's about you and God and rather a lot of millions of others who will be branches with you, brothers and sisters alongside you. It's not just about believing then. It's about belonging. Don't think you can make a little decision to like God. You're actually going to have to make a humongous decision to enter into this body called the church, the people of God. Second surprise, having dealt with you belong. You obey. It's not just about an intellectual assent, an intellectual faith, but about a physical obedience. It's almost like a vine itself. If you've seen a vine, the, the, kind of, the tendrils twist and turn. And the words in these final discourses of Jesus twist and turn and cling at different points. But this passage, whatever else it does, must throw up at least one question. What does it mean, according to verse 4, to remain in Jesus? How do I do that? Let's suppose, Alan, that, uh, that, that I come to some kind of faith. What does it mean to remain in Jesus? Well, there's no answer you can go to and pull it from uh, lots of vicar school uh, theology. You just have to go to the text and look at verse 7. We remain in Jesus when his words remain in us. And that's not obviously as a memory, but in order that we get on with what he says. That must similarly then be what it means to bear fruit. There are other places in Scripture where the language of fruit is used, and Jonathan used a famous one, Galatians, when it came to our confession. But it would be enough, quite simply, to stick with Isaiah chapter 5. 
When being part of God's people produces good fruit, God's intention is fulfilled, but it is thwarted when the people produce bad grapes. That's the complaint of Isaiah 5. And that must link, how couldn't it, to all that's going on about obedience from verse 9 onwards in our passage tonight. When the words of Jesus remain in us and we set about living them out, then he makes us real agents for his good purposes in the world. He could just bypass us. He could grow the fruit without any reference to you and me. But he wants to take you, my friend, and make you into someone who will bear fruit. He could ignore you, could ignore me, but he doesn't choose to do that. He cares enough that he wants to draw us into his purposes and let us be the ones who bear fruit. But that will only happen only happen as we remain in Jesus because, according to verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing, that is, that matters from an eternal perspective. You may be incredibly impressive. Some of you, I guess, are are, um, thinking about university uh, final exams. You're going out into the world. And some of you will undoubtedly make pots of money. And you will look incredibly impressive. Perhaps only a few of you. But um, (laughs) some of you will look incredibly impressive. But it's only eternity that really matters. And for the believer, that means that life is about being pruned and cut back, refined to produce more fruit. And perhaps you'll come back with that tagline that Christians often say, that we are saved by our faith and not by our works. And that is true. But we are saved in order to do good works. Biblical faith leads to fruit. It's not about a mental, intellectual faith. It is about a physical, getting-on-with-it obedience. You belong, and you obey. Now, at this point, my friend is probably feeling very nervous, and we would be thinking that it would be the job, if we'd given them a book, to be persuading them that they, they ought to become a Christian. Notice how often Jesus spends his time making it difficult to become a Christian, not easy. I've got friends, and I'm sure you have too, who could get, be persuaded to be intellectually interested in the Christian faith. Tell them they have to belong to the church of God, and that's immediately a bit dodgy. Tell them that they actually are going to have to obey, that it's about submission and obedience, And that is a serious problem. And that's just two out of the four. Third surprise. It's not about changing the world. It's about loving the church. Perhaps we thought in times past, those of us believers who are here, and perhaps my friend might be thinking that God will be so impressed that we have come to faith that he would invite us to play some part in a grand adventure that would transform the world. And of course that might be the case. It might yet be the case. But the promise that we actually get given seems at first sight incredibly dull and mundane. You are going to go to the trouble of believing in Jesus And Jesus says, love your friends. We have to do a little work to find out who they are. 
The friends are on this occasion those who are in the church. Again, you only have to look at the text. You don't have to, you don't have to learn anything. You just have to look at the text. Because according to verse 15, the friends are those who are no longer servants, but those to whom Jesus has made everything known. And because he's made everything known to them, they are transformed from servants to friends. That's clearly not the whole world then, but those who followed him closely. The friends are the disciples. The friends are the fellow disciples with each believer. I find that an astonishing surprise, don't you? Wouldn't you suppose that Jesus would set before his followers the challenge of converting the world around them, founding massive charities for good works, making a huge difference? Well, you can do all that. But if you cannot stand your fellow believer who sits alongside you in church tonight, it's all worth nothing. Because your heart has not changed enough. And that's the engine under God's spirit that drives everything else. It is actually brilliant. Verse 13, greater love has no one than that he lays down his life for a cause. It doesn't say that. Lays down his life for his friends. What Jesus is about is transformation. And it is harder to get on with a friend alongside you in church sometimes than to make a fortune. Harder to lay down your life for someone ordinary than for a cause that is special. Jesus does want to change the world, absolutely. But unless it begins with your heart and mine and with the heart of my friend, it will make no difference. But if it does begin there, then we will change the world. Wouldn't it be normal, very normal, to suppose? I mean, I, I could talk to my friend and uh, uh, get, him, get him or her to, to complete verse 9. As the, talking about coming to faith. As the Father has loved me, well, what do you think you're supposed to do in return? And my friend would say, well, love the Father, I suppose. That would make sense. That would be normal. That's what we expect. As the Father has loved me, we love the Father. But it doesn't say that. It says, so have I loved you, now remain in my love. If, it kind of goes on for a while. You have to see where it's ending. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I've obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you all this, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other. As I have loved you, Love me. No, love each other. The love of God doesn't work like a mirror bouncing backwards and forwards between you and God, but like a ripple. Verse 9 is not what we would expect. It ripples on and on and on and on, and it never comes to an end. It's the deep structure of God's community. Jesus lays down his life for me, I don't lay down my life for him, but for you. And you do it for someone else, and they do it for someone else. It may be about changing the world, but first it begins with loving the church. You belong, you obey, you love. Fourthly and finally, it's as much about what you ask for 
as it is about what you do. Uh, How many of you have ever been through uh, Christianity Explored or Alpha or some other kind of course in Christian Basics? Put your hands way up. Sorry, I'm not going to ask you any embarrassing questions. Okay, that's a reasonable number. Put your hands down. I would bet that when you went through one of those courses, you were told about Jesus uh, and then invited to make some kind of response. And then after you um, uh, made some response, then you were told the bad news. Um, The bad news that um, actually you've got to read your Bible and go to church and um, uh, do what the vicar says or whatever that particular course may have recommended. We put prayer and Bible reading and church and all the rest of it after people have made key decisions. We do not do what Jesus does here. He makes prayer a reason for following him in the first place. Twice he says it in verse 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. And he does it in verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Fruit will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Now, of course, I have to qualify it fairly quickly. If what you want is a Ferrari, um, or in my case, I've always had a hankering for for a Maserati Quattroporte, but I just mentioned that in case anyone wants to give me one. Um, It's actually... If my words remain in, if your wor- my words remain in you and you in me, then you can ask. What you're asking for comes out of the business of, God, of Jesus' words remaining in you. It's still real. Again, we become real agents in the business of changing the world, just not as we might have expected when the world was our only horizon. We learn what Jesus in his character would want, and then we can pray for that confidently, knowing it will come to pass. Without doubt, what Jesus calls the kingdom of God will come. You belong, you obey, you love, and you ask. All of these have a surprise for someone who thought it was simply the exercise of believing in God and Jesus. How dull it would be for my friend if all he got were the satisfactions of, well, I think I will now believe in Jesus. Quite understandably, from where he sits now as an unbeliever, he wants to know what believing will do for him. And so what he needs to know from these verses in John 15 is that from God's perspective, it's entirely the other way around. In what way would your believing, my friend, become part of what God is going to be doing in the world through his people? He's going to be doing it whether you get on board or not. So let's not have a conversation as though you're doing me a favor by coming to believe in God. You are deciding whether to accept God's favor. That's the issue. And if you do, then know that this is what his favor looks like. You belong. You get to obey. You get to live right. You love. You ask. And that, for me, is why sitting down with an unbelieving friend and reading John's gospel is better than giving them a book by someone clever. 
Because by beginning it there, by beginning in this book and by beginning, by beginning looking at it together, you are already expressing that the heart of this business is relationship. This book is explosively powerful. And it's a mystery why we suppose it's only for believers. John, by the Spirit of God, says it's for unbelievers. Perhaps we think it's because it's difficult and people don't understand vines and people don't understand uh, sentences that go round and round. Well, you don't understand them, so why should they? If you take them with you in the journey of understanding, maybe we'll both learn something. Is it not possible that the things that make it challenging, and John can be a challenge, are there precisely so that it becomes a matter of learning together? Please have confidence in this book. It is not beyond you. It is full of surprises and it will surprise even you. It will forbid you from dropping into cliches that will not impress your friends. It is spare and stark and compelling and powerful and odd and mysterious and the Holy Spirit of God thought it was worth transmitting down the ages. I'm going to end uh, with a prayer. But as we head into that prayer, I want to quote from the coronation service of the British sovereign, to whom is said, in the course of that service, receive this book, the most precious thing this world affords. Here is wisdom, Here is the royal law. Here are the lively oracles of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we lay before you our our frequent sense of helplessness when faced with an unbelieving world. We lay before you the the little bits and bobs that we vaguely remember from a sermon here or a Sunday school there. And we kind of tag them together and, and hope they make some sense. Lord, give us confidence, we pray, in your word, inspired by your spirit, as valuable not just for us, but for those who do not yet believe. And let us with them learn that you are bigger and stranger and far more wonderful than ever we thought before. That hearts might be changed, including our own, And that because our hearts are changed, the world you made might be transformed as we belong, as we obey, as we love, and as we ask you to be the God that you have declared yourself to be in Christ. Amen.